You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 11th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Current favourite of the bookmakers, if not of people with functioning hearing, Cyprus. They can bank on 12 votes from Greece, but will they get enough from elsewhere to win Eurovision tomorrow? I'll be joined by Monocle's Eurovision Desk Chief, Eurovision Desk Deputy Chief and Eurovision Desk Assistant Deputy Chief to look ahead to tomorrow night's concert. We'll also hear from Monocle's Tom Edwards and Augustin Machilari on some of the week's biggest news stories from the Koreas to the Middle East to Malaysia. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today, at least for the first half of the show, are Monocle's Augustin Machalari, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Tom Edwards. Welcome all. In the first half of tonight's show, we're going to take a look at three of the week's biggest talking points, commencing with confirmation of the time and location of the what-could-possibly-go-wrong summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. The portly parade-loving demagogue with the famously thin skin and weird hair will meet the chairman of the Workers' Party of Korea on June 12th in Singapore. Uh, Tom, first of all, all jokes aside and so forth, is, is, is this good? I think it is good. There's been a lot of discussion around this table this week about whether Donald Trump's foreign policy successes are exactly that, successful, be they inadvertent, deliberate or whatever else. I think the fact that there is going to be this meeting, now there's still time for things to go wrong, but it, yes, looks, there is. it looks ever more likely, you know, he... I'm not going to say he deserves congratulation, but he would be the first sitting U.S. president to meet with the leader of the, uh, the of the North Korean Republic. Now that is an achievement. Uh, the questions about how he got there, I, I guess, complicate matters further. I think it's to be welcomed. Let's though stop short, well short of crowning this as some sort of diplomatic triumph. We've been here before. In other respects, certainly with uh, Pyongyang, and they're very well practiced at uh, the the non-offer offer. One of the things that really struck me was the return of the three uh, U.S. Uh, prisoners this earlier this week to, to to United States. Obviously, Trump welcomed them to great fanfare and said, "Look, here's me doing great work." As I understand it, I think all of those prisoners were taken when Trump was already in the office, which represents a rather curious lesson to. Uh, potential enemy countries of the US in terms of how to deal with the country, uh, get some bargaining chips once discussions are already underway. Uh, Augustine, it's fairly clear what a result would be in negotiating with North Korea for the United States and the rest of the world, which is basically that North Korea knock their nonsense off and behave themselves. But do we understand what North Korea see as a definition of success? Um. I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it, really? Like, uh, North Korea is notoriously opaque. Kim is, uh, as you said, well, no, you didn't. He's the chairman of the Workers' Party. He's a lure unto himself. I think as long as they've got the states off their back for a while, that's probably a sign that things are going well for them. They're going to want to open up trade to different countries. Presumably, they want to take a slightly bigger role, you know, in the world around them. 
and start interacting with neighbouring countries beyond China and Russia. Whether or not anything is going to come out of this, I mean, I feel very pessimistic about it, to be honest. Going back to the American trio that Tom was talking about there, it's less than 12 months ago since Otto Warmbier was released from North Korea, who promptly died, you know, within weeks of arriving back in the States, if not less, alleged to have been tortured viciously um, by the regime. There's a kind of pathos to the whole thing, which to me is bound up in the inevitability of its failure, frankly. <laughs> I like a, I like a positive help <laughs> on that upbeat note, Tom. Well, I just think there's one striking thing, which is you've you got to understand, I suppose, how... Kim, you know, similarly to Trump, he's all about Kim. He's about the perception of himself. And one of the things that he and indeed his predecessors, his father and his grandfather, sought desperately was the impression of equanimity or the impression of some sort of equality on the global stage, certainly with the South, but also with the US. And given the way Trump talks about this meeting, this meeting of minds, you know, look what we'll do for peace, exclamation point, he tweeted, didn't he, earlier this week. That gives Kim, I think, what he really wanted, which was to be a player on the stage, certainly with the South, and even with the US. It makes them seem relevant. And I wonder whether, kind of as all said, that's what they wanted. And he's got that before they're even round the table. Uh, Fernando, what if this actually somehow by hook, by crook, or complete accident works. Are we prepared to cope with the idea of Nobel Peace Laureate Donald J. Trump? I've been thinking about that. I wonder if the institution would do that, because, you know, of course, there's been a few controversies in, in, in the literature side of the Nobel. I mean, they'll be very controversial. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, it's a good thing if, if, if he does manage to do that, to achieve achieve peace, but I am doubtful they would choose him as, as the leader. But, but you know, Fair enough. If it does happen, I am I am not optimistic or pessimistic. I, I'm I'm in the middle, which is quite boring. Uh, for my money, <laughs> um, the you know the disintegration of the nuclear deal with Iran massively outweighs any potential benefits coming from North Korea. Um, the escalation that seems increasingly inevitable there is 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 a is a is a path to conflict that that peace that the denuclearization of North Korea doesn't away. Well, that does move us seamlessly along to the Middle East, where, sad to relate, Jared Kushner's efforts to bring peace are moving at a slower clip than those of his father-in-law on the Korean Peninsula. After Israel bombed what it claimed was Iranian military infrastructure in Syria in response to rockets launched at Israeli positions on the occupied Golan Heights, Iran, interestingly, has spoken up in support of Syria's right to defend itself. And I say interestingly there, Tom, because they didn't really get stuck into Israel for blowing up Iran stuff, which obviously Iran don't really want to admit is actually in Syria. Um, they could obviously have taken a much more aggrieved line if they wished to. Is this Iran kind of admitting that they might have pushed their luck? I wouldn't go so far as that. I think, I mean, I probably agree with what um, Augustine was saying. This concerns me greatly. And if you're looking at the potential for bellicose rhetoric to turn into hot conflict i think this still remains the kind of powder keg far more even than events even if we go back to what sort of november of last year on the korean peninsula it's instructive when you go back and you sort of look at the map and look at who's where you know you look at what happened in the elections in lebanon at the start of the week you know, there's all these proxy conflicts going on. I think Israel's obviously emboldened by how Trump's been making nice with Netanyahu. They've been kind of aping each other's uh, language. It's 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 really it's really frightening. And I think the fact that 
you know, Iran has sort of dipped a toe in of, of criticism, talking about Syria's right to defend itself. I don't think that kind of papers over the, the you know, these are some ni- diplomatic niceties, if you will. And they might be the last of those we see for a while, which is very alarming. Uh, Augustine, statement from Iran's foreign ministry said they said that Israel cannot stand peace and stability in the region and sees its own safety in making the region uh, all the more unstable. Um, is that a bit rich coming from Iran, accusing another country of wreaking havoc across portions of the Middle East, which are not really anything to do with them? Yeah, I mean, I think you could argue that it's a bit rich coming from any country in the region, really, <laughs> given that they all have uh, their little proxy wars going going on here and there. Saudi Arabia has been sticking the oar in in Yemen since, what, 2015, is it? There or thereabouts, There yes. or thereabouts. Um, yeah. Uh, short answer, yes, it is a bit rich. Um, I mean, I'm less worried about the Israel-Iran conflict. I think from Israel's perspective, you know, you've got Avigdor Lieberman, who's the defence minister, saying after the recent bombardment of Iranian positions. I hope that we finished this chapter and everyone got the message. I do think they mean that. You know, there's no vested interest for Israel in uh, this escalating into anything more serious. But I, te- I tend to agree. I, I think you're right about that. And I don't think there's anything in it for Iran either. No, I, I don't think there is. I think the risks here are that... Um, diplomacy breaks down, that things get confused, that Trump, who is unbelievably fickle and who, I mean, and, and his fickleness, by the way, being another reason that I don't think that the nuclear, the North Korea thing is even worth putting in the paper, frankly. Um, but I I would be more worried that that, that will deteriorate, that something will um, happen between the US and Iran and that Israel will be brought in uh, laterally. They're not going to be the catalyst for anything here. Uh, Fernando, you planted yourself firmly in the middle ground vis-a-vis optimism and pe- pessimism where Korea was concerned. Uh, where are you on this one? Well, I think this is, is more complicated. I, I, I don't think, for example, that, uh, you know, I, I, of course, Iran sent troops uh, to Syria to support President Assad. I, I, I generally, I, I just don't know. <laughs> so, I, like, I like the candor. I, I do. I, 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 I admire the candor. It's 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 such. A, it is an interesting story because you know the more I read, the more I don't understand. Which I'm, I, I'm sure the, listen, the Middle East. I'm sure the listeners would be angry Strangely, with me with that. That's, that's diametrically opposed to Donald Trump. Who, <laughs> the less he reads, the more he thinks. <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly what does worry me here. He had this sort of strongman approach. He sort of talked in robust language directly to to Kim, and he seemed. He obviously will now believe that he's secured a foreign policy triumph maybe tearing up the nuclear deal was him trying the same thing right you know i'll show tehran that what works for pyongyang works for them Mm. and of course exactly as fernanda suggests the complexities here are vast and i sense donald trump doesn't have that much appreciation of the nuance okay well before we move on to our our final topic in the roundup of the week's news i will plug tomorrow's edition of the foreign desk which does look uh, specifically at hezbollah uh, its role in lebanon following the recent uh, overdue parliamentary election in lebanon and also a discussion of what that means for the wider middle east that's midday tomorrow and of course anytime you like after that on our website but finally in our roundup of the week's news commiserations to queen elizabeth ii of the united kingdom who has lost her 
her title as world's oldest serving head of state or government, thanks to the caprices of the voters of Malaysia. In a surprise result, they have returned to office former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed, who is 60 days from his 93rd birthday. He will then need, and I checked, to hang in another five years to tip over the all-time record held by the 19th century Sultan of Brunei, Abdul Mumin, and the 12th century Dogue of Venice, Enrico Dandolo. Um... Augustine, first of all, is is 90... I mean, give or take, regardless uh, of what you think of a given politician's policies, is 92 a bit past it? Yeah. <laughs> Way past it. Maybe 30 years past it. I disagree. <laughs> I mean, he, he is in pretty... Well, actually, if, if you're above ground at 92, you're in pretty good nick pretty for good 92. Nick. But, he, but he, he is in pretty good nick for 92. I mean, all I can say is that I have a grandmother who is around that age, and I would not want her driving a car with me in it, let alone leading a <laughs> country. Uh, Fernando is begging to differ. We have some controversy yeah, here. I don't like too many restrictions. Keep it, keep it civil. I will keep it, no, keep it civil. I mean, you know, to be honest, it's 92. I think it's, it's okay to govern when you're 92. But I'm, I'm also of the opinion that if you're 22, that's okay as well. I just don't that's, like restriction as no, long as it's... No, no, that's a... T- it, that's it. That I would. Is it a bit I would too much? rather have ninety-two-year-olds in charge than twenty-two-year-olds. Mm. Oh. I just, I, I just don't like restrictions, you know, because I think you can have certain talent when you're a bit older or you're a bit younger. You can show different, you know, parts of of, of your brain. Uh, so I'm open. I, 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 I welcome this news. Okay. Uh, th- there are aspects of Mahathir's oh, sort of of policies and worldviews I think we can probably take a more uh, yes. uh, stringent view on, but, but the, the fact of his age in itself doesn't bother you? No. Okay. Tom? I don't know. I didn't want to be more concerned by his absence from frontline politics over, I think, 15 years. You know, a lot changes then. And whether you're 92, 72, to be out of the front line of politics for that period of time, I think, does divorce you to a degree from uh, the sort of the cut and thrust of politics. And it shouldn't be forgotten. He does seem like this sort of avuncular non-Agerian. He's very friendly. He's very charmingly said, yes, yes, I'm still alive, which is quite entertaining. But, you know, when he was the, I think he's the seventh... Uh, now he was the fourth iteration before he was quite an authoritarian figure he was something of a tough guy completely terrible is the phrase you're looking well, for and i think one of the problems if you actually look at the country that was a period of economic boom you know it was the asian tiger period and i wonder whether people are doing the classic thing of they're being politically nostalgic and they're saying ah yes that was the time we liked you know jobs were being created the cash was flowing and he stewarded us through it and they kind of forget the 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 the, the small print you know even in the u.s hugely unpopular presidents as soon as they're gone people start looking back with rose-tinted glass so i think there's a bit of political uh nostalgia at play here and i do worry what whether they're old or young if you're going for extremes, what does that say about the quality of political personnel? Where, where are the kind of reassuring middle-aged suits of my youth? That's the question <laughs> I have on, on, on the subject of being pointlessly nostalgic, Tom. Yeah. Quite. Uh, he, 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 does, he does plan to hand uh, power over to his former rival, uh, Anwar Ibrahim, which is interesting on because of the fact that Anwar Ibrahim is presently in jail, uh, where Mahathir Mohammed put him the first time. Um, is he being He's been cleared, being cleared. I imagine imagine that is a bureaucratic hurdle they are going (laughs) to have to overcome prior to installing him as Prime Minister. Well, I mean, that in itself is is, is intriguing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Today? Soon? So imminent. It, it's imminent. It is peculiar. Uh, and you, you can't believe for a second that Malaysia cannot do better than that. But anyway, we are going to do a short break 
do do a short break, take a short break. I was about to say Malaysia certainly deserves better than that. That's I got the whole D sound mixed up with the T sound is what happened there. I'm just trying to put off the second half of this show as long as I possibly can. <laughs> uh, you are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Fernando Augusto Bacheco, Tom Edwards and Augustin Machilari. There are still more about to join us because coming up next, we are going to play a Eurovision Song Contest board game live in the studio. That is a thing that we are going to do and there is almost no imagination way that this won't go absolutely brilliantly. Do stay tuned. Subscribe today to become part of the Monocle family. From product design to the best places to go, Monocle will bring a monthly dose of fresh ideas to your door. Being part of the family also comes with a 10% discount at the shop and online, as well as unlimited access to our online archive. In addition, you will enjoy priority access to selected product collaborations and receive exclusive offers and invitations around the world. Subscriptions start from £55. For more information, visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Augustin Machilari and our Eurovision Desk Chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We're also joined now from Lisbon by our Eurovision Desk Deputy Chief, Carlotta Ribello, and from Toronto by our Eurovision Desk Assistant Deputy Chief, Thomas Lewis. Also by Monocle's Music and Sound Supervisor, it says here, Kieran Matthew Banerjee. (laughs) Really? Yeah, apparently so. Well, congratulations. <laughs> uh, anyway, alert listeners will have detected a theme. We are a little over 24 hours from this year's iteration of the Eurovision Song Contest, that annual multinational demonstration of how not to do pop music. Uh, and we go, first of all, to Monocle's Eurovision Desk Deputy Chief, Carlotta Ribello, who is in Lisbon with the short straw. Um, Carlotta, welcome to the show. How is it all going? Oh, lucky me to go first. Thanks, Andrew. It's going really well. I think you'd really enjoy it. Uh, Lisbon well, is... I'd, en- I'd enjoy today. It's not on. <laughs> uh, today, actually, you couldn't escape Eurovision, even if you tried. Anywhere you go Watch in Lisbon, me. Uh, people are um, just watching uh, the rehearsals or other performers are playing in public squares across the city. Uh, some of the artists of some of the delegations that um, didn't make it through the cut in the semifinals have been doing uh, impromptu appearances in the Eurovision Village right in the downtown centre. So ba- uh, basically, basically what you're saying is that the people who couldn't even get through the semifinals of Eurovision are now reduced to busking. Oh, almost. (laughs) Almost that. But, you know, people are queuing up. They must be really good, you know. Well, that's that's an interpretation. Um, Who is is the bookies' favourite now? Now that we've seen the run-throughs of the semi-finals, who is the likeliest contender? Well, Israel still remains highly as one of the likely contenders to win. But Cyprus has been soaring up um, the charts as well in terms of who is likely to win. Uh, from last night's second semi-final, um, one of the clearest songs that, you know, tends to be the favourite, I think is on top six now in the bookies. Uh, and it's uh, the one from Sweden, uh, which we played earlier on, on the briefing um, by Benjamin Ingrosso, Dance Me Off. Um, and you'd be surprised <laughs> that actually the only country entering a country song, the Netherlands, made it true. Yeah. 
Well, that's 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 pretty exciting. They've got form for this, I think. The Dutch, or was it the Germans who did a country song a few years ago? It they, was dreadful. They love country, the Dutch. So, uh, so they started with the Common Linets, and they, I think they were top three. So I think say, you know what? We were lucky with a country song, so let's do it again. But Andrew, you know that the, the country is a very strong genre in the country. So I, I, um, I know this, Fernando. I, yeah. I have myself personally played country music in the Netherlands, yeah. and no one threw anything at us. But I'm sorry to say, I love country, but I. Don't particularly like the Dutch entry, but well done to Dan for going to the final. We're going to edit that so it sounds like you said, I don't particularly like the Dutch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Carlotta, what what will you be doing tomorrow night during the actual contest? During the actual contest, I'll be uh, watching it from the famed Eurovision village, uh, trying to get some interviews and actually watching some of the Portuguese performances happening there. You know, while on TV you have the usual fillers, we have Portuguese bands playing to the audience that's watching it uh, outdoors. So I'm looking forward to it, actually. And, And on Eurovision Eve, what will Lisbon be doing? Oh, we're getting ready for the big day tomorrow, of course. Today, Lisbon, uh, there's uh, three performances scheduled. Um, Of course, those who bought tickets for the rehearsal have been able to go to the Altice Arena today, um, which is a performance, what they call the family show and the rehearsal uh, tickets that's been going on all day. And we can't forget uh, that, of course, the big five countries, along with Portugal, the host country, uh, haven't performed so far. So for many, it's the only chance uh, to to watch those performances. Um, so there's actually quite a bit going on today. And just finally, and very, very briefly, how are how are people now rating Australia's chances? This is literally the only thing I care about. Uh, Andrew, I don't think he's going to make it this time, but it's actually not too bad. I think you're in the top five. It's just, it's, it's just not good enough. Carlotta Ribello in Lisbon, thank you for joining us. We will doubtless hear more from you after it's all over on the Daily on Monday night. We can go now to Toronto and our Eurovision Desk Assistant Deputy Chief Thomas Lewis, who claims somehow to have divined a Canadian angle, though I for one have my doubts. Uh, Thomas, please, please explain. Good evening, Europe. This is Toronto calling. See, this, this, is the, this, is, this is the... This is... Thomas, this is the only reason you have pitched this nonsense, isn't it? It's just because you wanted to say, good evening, Europe, this is Toronto calling. You've Absolutely. done, you've done you it disconnect now. The do, you line need, now. Yeah. do you need to See tell us anything Enjoy else? <laughs> Not really. No, I'm done. Okay. No, but seriously, as long as you're here, what, what is it? Well, it's quite an interesting little thing, Eurovision in Canada, because in Australia, obviously, it has a huge viewership and obviously is now part of the competition. It doesn't really have that same kind of vast appeal in Canada. But what I think is kind of interesting, if you look at a city like Toronto, which is one of the most diverse cities in the world, that you do have these pockets of communities where Eurovision is one of the highlights of the year. So a little like a World Cup, actually, when, say, little Italy or little Portugal, various neighbourhoods, in in Toronto absolutely fill the streets to come and cheer on their team. You have that on a smaller scale for Eurovision too. So, for example, we've had some news reports from uh, the Bosnian community here who are really excited for Eurovision this year, Uh, the Swedes, obviously. So, you know, Toronto will be coming to life in a fairly sort of, you know, fragmented way, I think, for Eurovision. Uh, But, you know, I think Ryan uh, Reynolds, one of, you know, the, the big celebrities in Canada at the moment, he came out this week and said, well, look, if Australia can be part of this, why can't Canada too? I think he's got a bit of a task on his hands to get it in the popular imagination nationally, actually. But um, we're doing our bit. We'll try our best and see see how things 
that get on. And of course, you know, Celine Dion, of course, one of the biggest uh, musical exports, won the Eurovision. So you'd think that it would have a have a bigger place in the, the hearts of Canadians. But maybe that will change this year. Who knows? She was, of course, representing Switzerland, and I knew that without looking it up. Uh, Tom, Thomas, I believe that there was there was a clip of a thing that you wanted to play. Um, I don't know what that clip was, but um, well, let's that's... play whatever you like. Can I? Uh, yes, I don't know what that clip was. Well, this is this is seamless production from somebody here. <laughs> yes, I'm looking it? at you, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Uh, <laughs> no, there's a, there is an expo- apparently a cinematic explanation. Yes, Fernando, it's Ryan Reynolds of, of, of why Canada isn't in Eurovision. It is Ryan Reynolds talking, actually. Let's can you imp- can you impersonate Ryan Reynolds, or do we actually have the clip? Oh, we have the clip. We Fantastic. <laughs> Our generous gift of Celine Dion alone should earn us an invite. And don't give me that crap about Canada not being part of the European family. You let in Australia, and they're barely on the planet. Well, it stops now, Europe. You've awakened a sleeping moose. All the power of our military. Legally, I have to use air quotes, but traffic cones and affordable health care will be coming at you hard. Okay, Fernando, what was I just listening to? Well, you've listened to Ryan Reynolds impersonating Deadpool, his character. It was a bit of a, a promotion for his upcoming film, but you know, and, and yeah, they just want Canada and Eurovision. <laughs> okay, Thomas, uh, finally and briefly, where will you be spending the Eurovision Song Contest? Um, I have found one of the only places in Canada seems to be showing this live in a public setting at least it'll be the Pauper's Pub I'll be there from 3pm local time if anyone wants to join me uh, <laughs> cheering on I think probably Israel I've got that tune stuck in my head I'm a big fan of that so yes I'll be maybe a lonely figure cradling a beer at the bar but do come and join us yeah, li- listeners in Toronto you know what to do what was the name of the pub again Thomas? The paupers. The okay, paupers everyone, just just go to the paupers. <laughs> go to the paupers around kickoff and yell, Thomas. Uh, Thomas Lewis, thank you for that. joining us. Uh, now and lastly on Midori House, possibly lastly in the careers of any of us, we are going to play a board game, and I, for one, will not hear criticism of this as an idea for entertaining broadcasting coming from people who are going to spend five goddamn hours of tomorrow night watching the Eurovision Song Contest. But it's an actual Eurovision board game which Fernando has bought. Fernando, how is this going to work? Well... We are playing the simple version, so I think all of you have trading cards in your hands with some multiple questions. So basically, one of us ask a question. Kieran, you can go first. Kieran can start. Can I start? Okay, fantastic. Which country returned in 2011 after taking part for the first time for the last time in 1997? Fredonia. Italy. Yes. Unbelievable. Which one? Hmm? Who? Italy. It was oh, Italy. I got it, yeah. yeah. Mate. Okay. I'm impressed. Dude, this is off to a riveting start. So is <laughs> oh, it, is it... <laughs> Sorry, I like to celebrate. <laughs> uh, Augustine, you, you have one? Yeah, I'm going I'm to go for a slightly tougher one because I can see that Fernando is otherwise going to just trounce us. Which year did Teddy Sholton win? Was it 1959, 1957, 1961 or 1963? I would go for 61. Eh, eh. 63. No. Oh. Andrew, no, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. <laughs> you left yourself with a 50 50 as well. Yeah. Mate, what, do you want to phone a friend what, there? What, 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 what were the options? Um, you don't care. Come on, it's just a bunch of dates. <laughs> no, I don't. So give me the All two right, dates. So I'll no, pick one. 1959 or 1963? 1963. No, 1959. That's You're all said. wrong. <laughs> uh, Fernando, we're, we're just assuming Fernando's the expert here. Or do you fancy a chances, Kieran? Um, you up against Fernando, I certainly. I have an no. easy question for you guys. Yeah. Okay. okay. Which country won with 1944? Lordy. 
No. <laughs> no, well. It was Jim, Ukraine. Oh. Yes, Andrew, yes. well done, well done. And wasn't it um, Jamela? Jamala, Jamala, yeah. That, that was the one about famine and genocide that the Russians got really upset about, wasn't yes, it? That's the one. That's the one. See, this is this is always, as you know, my favourite thing about Eurovision is is people using the song contest to sort of like smuggle, frankly, unsavoury, belligerent nationalist agendas into the. Is there any of that this year? Well, a little bit. For example, even the the favourite to win, uh, you know, from Cyprus. I think she was a refugee when she was a child. The Israeli song Netta, you know, talks a little bit about feminism and has saying, chicken noises. Chicken noises as well but we've had some touches of feminism in there as well so so I, I think every story has a story behind come for the chicken noises stay for the feminism let's not forget Georgia's we don't want to put in you know which was banned uh, classically but it's a fantastic song I, I, you know Putin Putin oh, Russia I see President. what they've done there Unf- unfortunately me forgetting Georgia's would involve me remembering Georgia's first and I don't think that's going to happen uh, Fernando another question for you with which song did the Olsen brothers win was it Fly on the Wings of Love, Drive My Car? Fly on the Wings of Love. I didn't even know. Of course, even, Denmark. I didn't even need yeah. Denmark. He's good, isn't he? It's a beautiful song. He's very song. good. Beautiful song. Would it Is make it a mastermind special subject, or was that something well, else? Well, I actually, guys, I have applied for mastermind. Yeah. And, uh, In my, Eurovision? In the UK. You know, the, the, the BBC <laughs> show. <laughs> 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 and, but I don't think I'm going to go through because they asked me some general knowledge questions and, and I failed terribly. Oh. Uh, Fernando, we have 10 seconds left. Who's going to win tomorrow night? Cyprus. 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 Tips for anybody else, Kieran? I would like to see the Netherlands win because it's the I think the only genuinely good song. <gasps> I've said it. Oh my God. Augustine? I heard Hungary's earlier and it made me want to uh, put my ears full of cotton wool. I'm going to go with Cyprus as well. 20 seconds of that was enough to get me moving. Have earlier. you heard Hungary's entry? I have not. It did is... I just say that? Hungry. Did I well, did I not say hungry? He just it's said hungry. Yeah. Preposterous. It's ludicrously bad. Emo. Screamo music. Okay, yeah. well, I'm, I'm looking forward to Hungary's, but I'm still saying go Australia. Uh, mercifully, that brings us to the end of today's <laughs> show. Thank you all very much for joining us. Today's show was produced, if we're going to call it that, by Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Researched by Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 18, 1900. Sorry, it's the menu with Marcus Hippie. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great Eurovision weekend and thanks for listening.